You guys can be seated at this time. Man, it's good to be back in the gym. I never thought I would say that, but it's so good to be back. This is a place I came into the church, and not long after that, we moved in here. And so the formative years of my discipleship happened when we were meeting in here. So it's a lot of great memories for me. If you haven't been with us recently, um, then you wouldn't know this, but today is our last day of a series that we've been in called Reclaim the Wonder. We've looked at the entire Bible from the very beginning, starting in January. We began with Genesis, and we learned about Abraham and Moses, Joshua, Samuel, David, Solomon, Jesus, and Paul, all in an attempt to reclaim the wonder by looking at the scriptural narrative in its completion. By looking at everything, the thought was that we can now see our part in God's plan to redeem the world and be amazed at God's genius to orchestrate such an incredible plan, as well as humbled by our small but very important place in it. We've made our way from the very beginning all the way to the very end, which puts us at Revelation. (laughs) Revelation. I will begin with a disclaimer that Revelation is notoriously one of the most difficult books in the Bible to preach a sermon on. Two primary reasons. One, there's a warning in Revelation chapter 22. The the writer of it, John, one of the apostles, he says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. It's a pretty weighty burden on one task with interpreting and preaching a sermon on because any sermon is just us adding to scripture, essentially. We read the scripture and then we give a spin on it. We add words to it. So it just requires extra care in the preparation process to ensure that any sermon is preached faithfully in accordance with what God is saying through that text. Which brings us to the second difficulty. Revelation is, one, is known to be one of the most convoluted, confusing books in the entire Bible. Nearly every single topic that it hits has a myriad of varying interpretations, all of which are heavily debated. If there was any book of the Bible that it seems that no one can agree on, it's Revelation. Now, if you've never read Revelation before, you might be wondering, what in the world? Why on earth would there be a book in the Bible that was so confusing? And why haven't we figured it out yet? What could it possibly say that is so obscure that thousands of years of biblical scholars couldn't reach a consensus on how to interpret it? And the answer to that question does not lie in what Revelation says, but rather what it is. If you're a biblical scholar here this morning, then you'll know that the Bible, despite being one book, is comprised of many books within it. And just like with other books, each of these books within the Bible has a specific genre, which is basically a classification of the type of writing that it is. Some genres found in biblical texts are Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're all writings of the genre of Gospel. There are Epistles, that's a genre, Colossians, Philippians, Ephesians, Galatians. There's Wisdom Literature, um, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes found in the Old Testament. That's a very specific genre and is trying to do a certain thing. And Revelation's genre is called apocalyptic literature. 
And just as within every genre group, there are specific characteristics that are typical of its writings. So for example, high fantasy is a genre in modern literature. It's one of my favorites. And you will expect, when you read a high fantasy book, that there are going to be elves and dwarves and dragons and magic and kingdoms. Those are very specific traits, characteristics of that genre type. So apocalyptic literature includes some of these characteristics. It's heavily mysterious, and it has symbolic language. It tells the story through the perspective of a man's vision, and so you'll often hear the phrase, and I saw, and I saw, and I looked, and behold, I saw. And it's this guy looking at events, given a vision typically by an angel or some spiritual agent. And these events are typically depicting the future, surrounding the end times and the final battle between good and evil. All of this is typical of apocalyptic literature. It uses blatantly fantastical and spiritual imagery depicting scenes of war between good and evil, where good and evil are so defined, unlike anything else. There's no gray area. There's the good guys and there's the bad guys. There's God and there's Satan. There's angels and there's demons, and it's very, very explicitly separated. We see all of this in Revelation, and it's these factors that contribute to its mystery. The interpretive problem is that in a work known to be so heavily symbolic, a straightforward, literal approach here does not really work. It seems inappropriate for us to take just the words, what it says, at face value. However, once you abandon literal interpretation, everything becomes messy. Now you have arguments, debates, different people throwing out different potential variations of what each symbol and element means throughout the text. And the confusion surrounding it leads to people like you and me to give up on trying to understand it thereby ceasing to read it altogether. A lot of us in here would say the last time you read Revelation was however long ago, two years ago. We don't really spend a lot of time in it because every time we go there, we're so confused, we're discouraged, we don't know what it means, we go to somewhere else. Go back to Philippians. <laughs> My aim this morning is to illuminate for you the central theme that pervades Revelation, which is that God is our sovereign source of hope. And John mentioned hope this morning when he introduced um, the, the worship. And we did not plan that. And so hope is a God-ordained theme this morning. So listen up, because God's doing something. And so to show you this theme, to show you this working out through Revelation, I'm going to show it through three key images that happen in the text that, that I believe are representative of the text as a whole. So forewarning, there's a lot of scripture going to be read in this sermon. I hope you're okay with that. I'm going to read a lot of scripture, and it's kind of ironic that the one day I read so much scripture, there's no PowerPoint to help you guys out. So we're going to go super old school. Hopefully you still brought your Bible. Look on with a friend. Um, but be encouraged, because Revelation 1-3 says that blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So even if you don't have a Bible, listen up. You will be blessed. The first image is found in Revelation chapter 5. Before I read that, it's important to know that in Revelation 4, John, who is writing this book, found himself in a vision of the throne room. He's looking at the throne room of God. It's a beautiful chapter describing the appearances of God and of the throne and of the angelic beings surrounding the throne, praising him day and night forever and ever. And that's where we pick up in chapter 5, starting in verse 1. 
Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. Jesus Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah does not appear as a glorious king in the throne room of God, but as a slaughtered lamb. And it is the fact that he is a slaughtered lamb that makes him worthy to open the scroll. In Revelation, we get incredible imagery in chapter 1 of Jesus in his glory. He appears to John with eyes like burning flame, feet like burnished bronze, dressed in a long robe with a golden sash around his chest, his hair like white wool, like snow, out of his mouth coming a sharp two-edged sword, his face like the sun shining in full strength. This is not the humble Jewish man that was born in Bethlehem who walked around the Sea of Galilee performing miracles unto death on a cross. This is God the Son in his glory. That's the Jesus we see in Revelation. But it's not as if the time that Jesus spent on earth was an unhappy but necessary phase that he had to go through because humans had messed up. It's not as if once he resurrects and ascends and is glorified that that is forever left in the past. By depicting the glorified Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the conqueror in the throne room of heaven as a slaughtered lamb, John shows us that even after Jesus' glorification, his death on the cross is a legacy that he will always carry with him. Later on in chapter 19, we see another image of Jesus as a rider on a white horse in the throne room of heaven. He's about to go into battle against Satan and his armies, and in the description of Jesus' appearance, he is said to be clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Now the tendency is to view Jesus as this glorious warrior bathed in the blood of his enemies, but if you read closely, you'll realize that the battle hasn't yet begun 
He hasn't slain anyone. There are no enemy's blood to be on his robe, so the blood on his own robe must be his own. There is power in the blood of Jesus Christ that sets him above every heavenly being and gives him the ability to definitively overcome any power of spiritual darkness. His secret weapon in his fight against darkness is his own blood. Kind of gives a new spin on nothing but the blood. And that leads me into the second image. The dragon has been defeated and will be vanquished. In Revelation, Satan is depicted as a ferocious dragon. It's the only book of the Bible with dragons in it, but don't get too excited because Satan is the dragon. Um, And so starting in chapter 12, verse 7, it says, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. In this passage, we see Satan launch an attack against the angels of heaven and against Jesus himself, and he is utterly defeated. In dejection, the dragon resolves to make war on everyone who keeps the commandments of God. That's us. And we feel this. We feel the effects of an enemy in our lives who desires that we stumble and fall away from God, who desires to rip us away from the presence of our Lord. We feel the presence of forces that would distract us or lead us into temptation or convince us that we truly need unnecessary material things. We feel that presence, and oftentimes it feels that this presence is overwhelming. It seems as if there's nothing we can do to fight against it. We look around us, and we see all the things happening in the world, all the trends that are happening in our own culture, which are so evidently fueled by deceit, and we fear. Though we never actually admit or talk about it, the honest truth is that many Christians think that God has been backed up into a corner and that Satan is having his way in the world, that somehow God is in trouble because Satan is just so good at what he does. Church, nothing could be further from the truth. In Revelation chapter 20, we see the dragon's demise. 
Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hands the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. In this passage, there's a great theological debate about the thousand years. There's premillennialists, amillennialists, postmillennialists, all these people thinking, okay, when is this going to happen? Does that mean there's going to be a thousand years of peace on earth and then Jesus will come back? Is Jesus going to come back and then the thousand years of peace is going to happen? There's a huge debate. We'll never be solved until the end, really. And such a debate causes us to oftentimes overlook the fact that Satan will be destroyed. Satan will be defeated. He will be bound up. He will not be able to lift a finger against God anymore. That is his future. God's allowing Satan to act towards destruction on earth right now is not a sign of weakness. God has been and will always be sovereign over every single evil in the world. This is Satan's fate. Undoubtedly, 100%. The dragon will be slain once and for all. So if you are in the midst of hardship, if you feel that you are being terrorized by forces of evil or spiritual darkness, know that God is in control and he will destroy that. No doubt about it. However, that alone does not seem to be enough for the perfect happy ending. Even with evil gone, there still exists the remnants of destruction. There still exists the pain that lingers in the aftermath. If any of you have ever experienced a grievous loss, the result of sin allowed to run rampant, then you know the pain to which I am referring. In a world of chaos, it's not enough to simply stop the chaos from spreading because the chaos has already done so much. But God doesn't stop there. The final image of the entire Bible, found in Revelation 21 and 22, is one of the most powerful images in all of Scripture. It speaks of the new creation and its perfection after evil has been vanquished. It speaks of eternal life. What we see in Revelation is not some otherworldly text promising that one day we're going to leave this world of hardship behind in its destruction. So often we think that eternal life is going to be spent in this faraway, abstract, spiritual realm called heaven where we will live as spirits or something with God and eternity. But this is not the image of the Bible. The Bible is a text that promises that one day, God will come down to us and make his dwelling place with man, renewing all things to his glory and ridding the world of every remnant of the evil that once plagued it. I'm not going to read all of the two chapters, but as I close, I want to invite the band back up. I want to read this out. 
Many of you, this might be the first time you hear this. Maybe not for others. But this is the hope of the Christian life. This is the promise that makes every evil vanish. This is the promise that makes all of our hardship, all of our pain, fade into nothing. Starting in chapter one, or 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one who conquers, he will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the twelve gates, twelve angels. And on the gates, the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. On the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, 
and they will reign forever and ever. Church, this is it. This is the fruition of God's plan that he started all the way back with Abraham to redeem the world back to itself, to bring us back into Eden. Every prophet, every priest, every king, Jesus Christ himself, they all lived their lives to this purpose of global redemption and renewal when one day God would dwell with man forever and we would be his people. This is why he created us. In such a broken world, it's easy to slip into doubt because it seems that God has just created us to suffer and die. But that was never the plan. Did God allow sin to happen? Yes. Nothing ever happens completely independent of the will of a sovereign God. But even from the first moment of sin, when God knew that his blessed human beings were falling into destruction, he had New Jerusalem in mind. All along, he has seen the end and considered it worth suffering for. We forget that we are not the only ones who suffer from the effects of sin. Jesus Christ felt the weight of it all. Crushed under the sins of the world, God knows what it is to suffer. But he always had his eyes set on the renewal of all things, when evil would be no more, when death would be no more, when pain and suffering and sorrow would be no more, and man would live in perfect union with God from everlasting to everlasting, praising his name and receiving his joy, perfected in the image of Christ. Revelation is a letter written to a persecuted church. And though much of it is confusing, its aim was not to provide a puzzle to be solved by theologians. Its aim was to provide such extravagant imagery of hope that the church would then be able to remember its words and continue to press on, sustaining counter-community in a world feverishly worshiping the beast. To quote the very last words of all the Bible, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. God, the picture of you that we see in your Bible, in your scripture, in your words that you have given to us is too beautiful for us to look at and really comprehend. When we truly see it, when it's uncovered for us and we get a glimpse into who you are and what you're doing and what you've always been doing, it fills us with this childish, giddy joy that makes us want to laugh and cry at the same time. Because you're amazing. You're the fulfillment of everything that we've ever needed. So God, we place our hope in you this morning. No matter what we brought in here with us, no matter what it is that we're carrying with us on a daily basis, whether it's a sin, whether it's a pain, God, we give it to you because we know that you are so much bigger and the hope that you provide is so much greater and so much stronger than anything that could possibly keep us away from you. We trust that one day Satan will be no more and this temptation, this enemy will no longer be against us. He will fall and we will stand. we look forward to the day where we get to spend eternity with you in the relationship that we were created to have. And we just want to praise you every day until then.
It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit that I pray. Amen.